Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Infuse your booze with InBooze Alcohol Infusion Kits. InBooze is a line of alcohol infusion kits handmade from dehydrated fruits, spices, and herbs. Ashley, mother of four and cocktail lover, was looking for a new way to enjoy drinks at home. And in 2018, she found it. InBooze infusion kits are made with locally sourced ingredients, including Michigan apples and cherries. Infuse your kit for three days. Choose your mixer and shake it up. Enjoy everything from margaritas to mules, right from home with your InBooze alcohol infusion kits. Visit InBooze.com to learn more. How to See a Man About a Dog is a book that asks, if mental illness is so bad, then why does everyone have it? And answers, what doesn't kill you often makes you walk funny. The new deluxe hardcover edition includes never-before-published stories, poems, and powerful graphic illustrations by digital fine artist Jasmine Cartwright. These breathtaking images bring Samuel Knox's original vision to life. Life's got a lot of setups and no punchlines, writes best-selling author Samuel Knox. Greater mysteries paint a future of hope rather than a swell of existential dread. Get the deluxe edition of the instant cult classic, How to See a Man About a Dog, by Samuel Knox, on Amazon today. We're here with Bethany C. Morrow, author of Cherish Farah, which is available now. I am so excited about this book. I just got my review copy in the mail last week. It is part of what is coming to be called the social horror genre. So if you'd like to explain what that means and then just tell us a little bit about Cherish Farah. Social horror is a genre of horror that deals specifically with the sociological context in which we find ourselves. So it's a horror that is very much based on existing tensions and dynamics within our society. The one that everyone is probably most familiar with, of course, is Get Out. What I love about social horror is in order to appreciate, partake, or anything, you have to let go of this delusion, this gaslighting that we are so accustomed to in the United States, which is that particularly a a racially marginalized person can say, this is my reality. This is what's happening. This is what's being done to me. And then other people can say, well, I don't know if that's true. Further dehumanize you by acting like it's up for discussion. And in order to engage with or even be entertained by social horror, you don't get to do that. You you have to come fully uh, prepared to deal with the reality of our society in order to take part in it. So Cherish Farah is about a 17-year-old named named Farah, I want to say right off the bat, this is not young adult, having a teenage protagonist 
does not make it a young adult novel, which you will find very quickly as you're reading this book. And she is very troubled. We are almost claustrophobically close to her. She's our POV character. And so we are privy to everything that's going on interiorly. Everything is sort of being interpreted by her, which is a very unsettling experience the, the more you get to know Farah. And she has a budding psychopathy. She also has a best friend who is the only other black girl in their country club community. But her best friend, Cherish, is being raised by and has been adopted by a white progressive couple. And so Cherish is something that Farah calls WGS or white girl spoiled. And it's actually a very sociologically complex concept, despite the fact that it sounds almost playful, like a term of endearment, but it really is a name that Farah has put to the kind of void that she sees in Cherish's understanding and really just at the core of Cherish because she has this family and this experience that is in total contrast to the reality of of the rest of society, the rest of the country, actually. And because of it, she is coddled the way that a white child might be, but not being white and therefore not having this sort of social political capital that comes with that. It simply creates deficits as far as Farrah is concerned. And it definitely gives her a foot in to sort of take hold of Cherish and be extremely important to cherish. So many things going on with this book. I know (laughs) that you do a wonderful job of pulling the reader in. And I am so interested in the tight, tight POV that Mm -hmm. you talk about. And also as Farah having this budding psychopathy, as you were saying, and this mask that she wears. I think it's super interesting. One of the things that I think is particularly nuanced about your writing in particular, but also in the social horror genre, if you have a white reader that is not perhaps familiar with internality of what it is like to not be white, Mm -hmm. I think that is so revealing for the reader and gives you so much of an opportunity to impact your reader. It's such a naturally indicting and challenging genre. And that's what I love about it. Because as I said, you know me pretty well. So you know that I don't buy the bumbling bigot act. I don't buy the complete unawareness because we are actually raised in the same country. We do have the same media. You know, we have pockets and and different things where, of course, you could hide out, but that would be intentional. You'd have to intentionally hide out in those places. And anytime you're doing something intentionally, you know why you're doing it even if you're unwilling to verbalize it. And so what I find really interesting in in putting someone in such a claustrophobic situation is it challenges the really one dimensionality that white supremacy imposes on pretty much everyone else. The beginning of the book and Cherish and Farah are eavesdropping on their mothers, having a conversation. And Farah's mother is actually trying to warn Cherish's mother. She's actually trying to sort of confess that she has concerns about Farah and Brianne Whitman, which is the white mother, she's Cherish's mom, does not hear it as the warning that it is. We have these pendulum swings and it's either like all black girls are villains or infants. And so Brianne Whitman in her progressiveness has gone all the way over to 
victims, infants. And you realize immediately how dehumanizing that is, regardless of whether you think it's a quote unquote good stereotype or not, or, or a beneficial stereotype or not. It's not because you're dehumanizing people to the point that you can't see them clearly or you're refusing to see them clearly. You know, when you're dealing with somebody like Farah, what are the possible consequences of that? Using such a tight and claustrophobic POV and, and it being social horror and dealing with a with a public that I don't actually believe is as bumbling and, and unaware as they pretend, at least not of themselves and why they are doing what they're doing, why they feel so comfortable in these lily white communities. I don't think that it's going to be hard for people to understand that something is wrong mm-hmm. with Farrah and to pick up on the nuance of Farrah. You have to, in order to even decide she's unreliable, but as I say, all narrators are unreliable. Any human is unreliable. It doesn't mean that they mean to be, but they are. And the question is, is it malicious? Are they dangerously unreliable? Who is the safe person to trust? Not because they're reliable, but because they don't mean you any harm. You have to make those kind of decisions because all of the information you're getting is through Farah. It's through the lens of how she sees the world. And you'll be there with her in an interaction and then you'll hear how she's interpreting it. Do you believe her? Is is she still the safest person to believe basically in this scenario? Yeah, absolutely. I love that approach. You're so right. Anytime you're in a POV, you're experiencing the world through that person's eyes. We all have our own lens. Everything that we carry with us that we have been taught or how we experience the world is part of interpreting our Mm -hmm. moments. So it's all going through that funnel. Uh, Character is then relating it to the reader. The reader doesn't have access to how that funnel was created. So they don't know. That's a wonderful point. I love it so much. Create beautiful books with Vellum. Create ebooks for every platform with Vellum. Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books, and more. Each specialized file will guide readers to buy your next book in their store of choice. For print, choose your trim size and Vellum does the rest, giving you a professional result. Vellum 3.0 features 24 styles with 16 all-new designs. Each one allows for multiple configurations, giving you a new world of options for your books. Add a rich background behind the beginning of every chapter. You can even set the mood with white text on a dark background. Vellum comes with six illustrated backgrounds ready to use in your book, as well as a custom option where you provide your own. Also included in Vellum 3.0, new options for fonts, TikTok for social media, size control for custom ornamental breaks, and new trim sizes for your print books. Vellum, create beautiful books. Whether you've written a novel, memoir, poetry, nonfiction, young adult, or children's book, you need a website to promote your work of art. PubSite is here to make that easy. PubSite allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking, professional website. This easy-to-use DIY website builder was developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 50, PubSite gives you the tools to build, design, and update your website pain-free. Build your website with a 14-day free trial or hire PubSite to set up the website for you. 
Authors like Tom Clancy, Robin Cook, Janet Daly, and hundreds more use PubSite. Visit PubSite.com to get started today. That's P-U-B hyphen S-I-T-E dot com. Experience Love in Times of War, a musical novella by Beck Norman and James Keith Norman that follows the story of a pregnant young woman who has lost her lover to war and sets out to raise her child in a peaceful life until history repeats itself. Love in Times of War is a remarkable concept album that consists of 14 riveting spoken word narrations that alternate with emotionally charged instrumentals that complement and evolve this timeless, proudly romantic story to its fateful conclusion. Narrated by Beck Norman, with music by James Keith Norman, and a special appearance by Stephen Fry, there is no listening experience quite like Love in Times of War. Find Love in Times of War on Spotify and Apple Music. I also wanted to bring up Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. It's been brought up a couple of times today, and I need this book. (laughs) It is so good. I enjoyed it so much. I highly recommend the audio. The audio is amazing because the performer does such a wonderful job of even the way that the words are spoken and the nuance of how the characters are even processing their internal thoughts is different for the white narrator versus the black narrator. It was a wonderful book. I enjoyed it so much. And it goes back to what you were saying about that POV because you have both characters experiencing the same situation often. And one of them is through a white lens and one of them is through a black lens. And Mm -hmm. it changes everything. Right. I just had to look it up to see who reads the audio because, of course, as a fellow author, I know how important the audiobook is and how important the talent is. And it's Nicole Lewis. I'm really looking forward to listening to this. The audiobook for Cherish Farah is performed by Angel Peen. And I was really serious about being involved in that process because from an accessibility point of view and also just the way that people sometimes choose to read, there are certain people for whom the audiobook is their only experience of this book. I want to make sure that they are reading the same book that I wrote. It was really wonderful to really talk with not just Angel, but also with director Barbara about Farah. Barbara had very obviously read very closely. Um, I really appreciated all of her direction and stuff. But when you're talking to somebody about what's going to make or break the audiobook for a book like this, it is absolutely the fact that yes, it's all narrated by Farah, but some of it's happening outside of her head and some of it's happening inside of her head. And if you don't understand how strategic she is, you might make the mistake of having a pretty um, consistent performance. And and that's not the case with Farrah because so much of what she's doing is based on who she's talking to and what she's trying to get out of the interaction. Listening to Angel in, in the same scene, be talking to Cherish as Farrah and then be talking to the reader as Farrah and just lose any sort of joviality in her voice or any sort of lightness in her tone. I was like, oh, okay, she's nailing it. <laughs> 
It's so important, isn't it? I love what you're saying about audiobooks and being involved and knowing even the narrators that are working in the arena. As a consumer, I definitely have some preferences about mm-hmm. whose voice I like, whose performances I like. Do the male narrators just pitch their voice high when they're doing women or do they actually right. try a little harder, right? And the same for female narrators when they're doing male characters. want to see that actual performance. So as a consumer, I have preferences when it comes to being a creator because it is a performance and the the nuances are so important. And in a Mm -hmm. book like Cherish Farah, that is even more important. And yes, like you want to be involved. It literally changed the book if it's not done correctly. Exactly. It is a step removed from the medium that you delivered it in. And so someone interpreting it. Right. And, and the thing is that they don't necessarily mean it that way because they mean it to be, okay, you've got your hardcover and you've got your audiobook and you can choose between them. Well, anytime you have more people involved in the process of presenting it, of course, there's going to be some interpretation and anybody who's had any audiobooks where they weren't involved, you know, you don't even think of all the ways that something can be implied in the delivery and completely change the tone of the scene, completely change the meaning of the sentence. You don't think about it until you hear it done and go, oh, I wouldn't have even known to flag that. Like, I didn't even think about all the different ways that a person could say that. It was really important with this book, just from the onset, you know, this being my fifth novel and therefore my fifth audiobook, I knew that this book, you would not get the same story if I wasn't involved. If I didn't have a chance to hear and give feedback and talk to them about the characters and, and about the dynamics, I was really concerned. And I want people to have faith that when they listen to the audiobook, they're getting the book. Yes, it's so important. It's critical. It is similar in ways to having your book turned into a film because it's being filtered through others. In that case, you expect that this is an adaptation, right? Oh, That's yeah. the thing. Is those are adaptations. An audiobook is not considered an adaptation. It's considered the book. I know that adaptations are are completely different animals. I'm always interested to see what decisions they make because if you try to just make a book into a TV show or into a movie, it doesn't work. These are completely different mediums. The strengths are different. The storytelling tools that you have are completely different. There's usually one thing you have to get right. It depends on the book, but there's usually one thing you have to get right. Sometimes it's the world. Sometimes it's the theme. Sometimes it's the main character. If you really secure that, you're going to do right by the original work. But an audiobook, the reason it's so jarring when it doesn't match up is because it's not considered an adaptation. So you're, you're expecting it to match up. Yep. Yep. I agree. And you were talking about not even knowing to flag something as the author. Right. And how you'll hear a certain line delivered and be like, oh, oh, no, like that. That is not what I said. (laughs) That changes everything, even though the same words. And I think it is really interesting because I have experienced that just as a person moving through the world. I certainly don't think of myself as a nice person. I always tell people I'm kind. I'm not nice. I'm not going to be unnecessarily flattering to you. Right. Uh, If you fall down, I will help you up. I will certainly never push you, but I'm not going to sit to you and watch you cry and bring you a bandaid. I'm going to get your ass up. We're going to keep moving. So (laughs) it's like, this is just kind of how I operate. And none of my intentions are ever mean or cruel. Mm -hmm. And I know this because I know my internality, even as a child and then like growing up and being in junior high and high school 
and people will be like, oh yeah, like I would not fuck with you. You are, you know, rough around the edges or whatever. And I'm always like, I'm, but I'm not, right? But I'm right. I listen. We are very, very uh, similar in this way, and I think it's probably why we hit it off immediately in our in our first meeting because like everything that you're saying right now, I'm like same. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And then, of course, today in the world where we all have cameras and phones and video right. recorders in our pockets, it's like, I will rewatch me on a panel or even like a conversation that I'm having with someone else with friends or something. And somebody will be like, oh, my gosh, here's this video. And I'll watch it. And I'll be like, oh, damn, like that did sound bitchy. Right. Well, and, and it's and it's because, you know, again, as a student of sociology, we are always responsible for the social contract, the agreed upon. And that doesn't mean everybody got a vote, but like the agreed right. upon correct way to engage. And most of it has nothing to do with being genuine, with being honest, with being helpful. Even we err on the side of flattery before we err on the side of aid. Yeah, Like we yeah. think that a feel good story is we're going to give 10 teachers a chance to scrounge on the floor for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And it's like, this is such a feel good story. Let's show this all over the media. And if you think about it, that's cruel. Oh, it's demeaning. That's mean. That's terrible. You're telling me that you know that they don't have everything that they need. You're gonna, you're not going to do anything on a policy level. You're not going to push for any sort of change. You're going to think that it's a good thing. And it's a nice thing because you can make this moment of content where somebody ends up getting something. And then we're going to focus on that one person to the exclusion of what is the reality of the situation. And I think people like you and I are more concerned with what's reality. Like yep. what's actually nice. What's actually mean. Yep. What's actually helpful. Um, and so it's really difficult to always adhere to these little games that you know are sinister, honestly, because they don't care about fixing anything. They don't care about helping anybody. They care about getting that feeling, getting a feel good yes. snippet. And just focus on that and, and not really look at what else is happening. And, and for some of us, thank God, um, we can't do that. No, no. And in my interactions with other people, I just, I don't do fake. I won't do it. And so people ask me, like, how are you doing? I answer them. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Fine. I'm okay. One time I was, when I still worked at the school, the superintendent secretary, she called me, I was at my desk and I answered the phone and she's like, Hey, and she needed me for a couple of minutes, but she was like, Hey, what are you doing right now? And I'm like, um, I'm menstruating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, look, I just want to be honest with you. And I want to, <laughs> I want to be transparent. Um, yes. I am bleeding right now. That is what's up. I'm menstruating. Right. I know. When a person does that it throws everyone else as yes. you're saying that social right. contract that we've all been trained up to and been most of us operating within for a very long time and i'm just like you know i'm i'm going to step outside of this and i'm just going to be me and well because it's because it's not it's not as useful as we pretend it is. It is absolutely an oppressive and intentionally oppressive thing. It's like grease for the wheels. It doesn't actually care about the health of the organism. It just wants it to keep running. Yes. And one of the things about Cherish Farah is here's a person who can pretend. How useful is this contract if it can be faked? Yep. If you're not actually safe with this person, just because they know the right thing to say and do, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's genuine. And it doesn't mean that they will always adhere to it. They're choosing to adhere to it for a time. And of course, the thing about the book is how many people are actually doing that. Yes. Yes. So powerful. Well, I agree completely about that social contract being for the benefit of the system, but also 
so superficial. My experience of it would be Thanksgiving dinner, right? No, I'm going to talk about this. I'm upset and I have a problem. I'm not going to be like, oh, the turkey wasn't dry this year. Right. <laughs> well, and, 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 and that's where you get all those buzzwords and those reactionary assaults that are meant to put you back in your place. You get words like divisive. Whomever is not allowing the system to function as it's functioning. You become the problem if you talk about the problem. Yes. Because we've been trained to be like, everything's fine as long as I'm allowed to feel good, regardless of reality. It doesn't matter what the reality is. And actually anybody who tells the truth and forces us to see that this is a fiction, that person is actually to blame. Yes, absolutely. And all of this then ties back into Cherish Farah and the mask that Farah is operating with and how it slips. It starts to slip as the story mm-hmm. evolves. There's an aspect of it where a little bit of it slips because she's sort of destabilized from losing control. And people will try to read her sort of simplistically, which it will be a mistake, which is to say like, oh, she she envies Cherish. She's jealous of what Cherish has. No, she's not. Mm-hmm. She believes in control and she believes in ownership. So she is concerned with owning Cherish. She's not concerned with becoming Cherish. She's not concerned with anything other than continuing to be the most important and necessary person in Cherish's life. And that maybe becomes stronger because she loses the control in her personal life because of her parents' foreclosure. She's entirely, entirely about control. The thing is, I'm going to say this, and I still think it'll be difficult for people to ignore. Farah is the story you think you're reading until you know the story you're reading. Mm -hmm. And that means multiple things can be true at one time. She is exactly who she sounds like. Does that mean she's the only one though? Like, does that mean that she's the least reliable? If, if we if we accept that she's unreliable, does that make her the most unreliable? Or is it is it possible for other people to simultaneously be unreliable? And it's one of the things that her mother is trying to get her to grasp. There are always multiple stories, multiple narratives being yes. woven at a time. Last thing, why don't you let people know where they can find you online and where they can find Cherish Farah? You can find Cherish Farah anywhere that books are sold. I do encourage people to also pick up the audiobook narrated by Angel Peen. And you can find me always on Twitter at BC Morrow. That's B-C-M-O-R-R-O-W because that's where I live. And you can find me at the same handle on Instagram. I'm not as good at it. I don't know what to tell you. I, I also know. have a website, BethanyCMorrow.com. Vellum. It just works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact, an enemies to lovers romantic suspense, hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store, has this to say about Vellum. There are always a ton of hang-ups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins. But Vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and, most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. That's trivellum.com forward slash pants. Vellum. It just works. 
Writer Writer Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.